Hi, Nicole. Uh, thanks for being the first guest to the premiere of this podcast. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, good. Um, I'm really glad you signed up for this um, first week and that you put in the effort of putting your spin to the episode. I think that's really great. Thank you. Let's just start with uh, talking a little bit about you first. Okay, sure. So tell us about yourself. So I'm a grad student in the speech pathology program at Adelphi. I went to Adelphi undergrad as well. And I was on the track and cross country teams for the first four years. I used up all my eligibility and I lived on campus for the first five years. And now this is my first year commuting. So I'm getting used to all the traffic and everything that comes along with it. But it's been a nice little adjustment. Um, So that's my life with Adelphi. Um, (laughs) About me personally, I live in Comac, New York, and I have a big stereotypical Italian family. So we have our Sunday dinners every week. And my family is like a huge part of my life. I just I, I just came from uh, I went to Italy last summer. It was amazing. I'm so jealous. Yeah, it's a wonderful place. Wonderful culture, food, people. It's a, it's great. Oh, thank you. Yes, it is really nice. So um, I haven't been there yet. So I'm super jealous. <laughs> but um, <laughs> my grandma's from like, she's like, off the boat and she lives around the block from me so I feel like I have a piece of it here with me sure but um I've never actually been there in person so it's something I'd like to do someday so I think uh, you said you were a speech language pathologist yes um just for people who don't necessarily know what that entails could you just tell tell us a little bit about it sure so speech I feel like when I was in high school a lot of people didn't know what it was and I'd be like oh I'm majoring in speech pathology and they're like oh that's such a great job Wait, what do they do? And now I feel like it's becoming a little bit more known. So we work on a few different services. A lot of it, what people assume we do, is like work on the R sound and articulation Hmm. and all the different speech production sounds. But we also work on language. I was placed in a middle school last semester. And it's a lot of um, answering WH questions and sequencing that are important for classes outside of speech it's just like applicable to a lot of things. Um, mm-hmm. Cognition, feeding and swallowing. Mm-hmm. So if there's a baby, like we could be in the NICU working with a baby who's having a hard time feeding or attaching to a bottle. Or you mm-hmm. can also be with an adult who had a stroke and no longer like their brain stopped functioning in that way where they forget how to swallow. And now they're mm-hmm. choking on their foods. There's also fluency for people who stutter, voice which um, we work on a lot of the tones. And now it's becoming a new part of the field with the transgender community, working on Mm. um, if somebody wants to trans from a male to a female, working on that voice change. So that's been a new part of the field as well. Oh, that's interesting. Do you, or are you interested in working primarily with kids or adults, or is that something you pick? How does that work? Yeah, so a lot of people go into it, and they know right away, I want to work with EI, which is early intervention, birth to three. And that's what they want uh-huh. to do. Or people go in and say, I want to work with adults. For me, growing up, I always wanted to be a teacher. So I thought 100% I was going to want to work with kids. And then I got mm. into the field and started to see it. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. And I kind of like the older people, too. So now I'm at a private practice for mm. speech. And for me, it's kind of the best of both worlds because you get to see both sides of it. You get to see that birth like they say that it's like from birth to death which is so you could have like mm. babies coming in to older people as well 
So it's kind of a nice way to see all sides of the field. Are you, are, did you just start the program or are you in the middle, in the end? Um, I'm done in May. So that's exciting. Oh, okay. Yeah, Great. it's a two and a half year master's program. So this is my last semester. Thank you. Oh, great. Yeah. I mean, Adelphi has a great uh, speech language pathologist program. Thank it's you. Very popular. So, yes. uh, yeah. So, um, so that's great. And it's also very in high demand, too. So, yeah, I hope um, so. So, it's thank good, you. Good field to be in. Thank you. What um, did you go to school for? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> my, my undergrad was in business. And then I went to, uh, I went into teaching of English in one of my masters. Um, and I did my doctorate in something called, a language literacy and technology okay which is like um kind of a catch-all like if you don't fit anywhere else kind of thing because <laughs> it's everything right everything is language literacy and technology but my leanings are more towards the linguistics and anthropology and and the kind of that aspect of game i studied games um games okay kind of educational technology which is you know which is why i'm here so yeah uh, that's super interesting so yeah yeah that's that's who i am thanks for asking oh for um so let me talk just a little bit about the podcast itself, just I think maybe what some of your peers would want to know as well. Um, first, I, the conversation is not a, my favorite title. I was going to call it the interview, but I thought I don't actually don't want it to be an interview. I wanted it more to be a conversation. Yes. So uh, just, if anyone can come up with a better title or a better and a better logo design, please uh, <laughs> please feel free to innovate on that. But uh, I, I do just want the it to be more of a conversation that that we will assume that whoever's listening, certainly the people who are in this class, and even potentially outside people, um, which can happen, <laughs> uh, that that will assume that people have done the readings and that we're not just kind of summarizing the readings, but we're actually just having a discussion about it. One of the things that that have been shown to be really effective is when students are able to see other people, including their instructors, kind of trying to make sense of the reading so that they know that they're not the only ones who don't understand something or have questions or whatever. So yeah. hopefully this is that way of making it more transparent. And also just sometimes with online classes, you might people might feel like they're not connected, there's no community, and so this is a chance of building on that community. That sounds great. So the next thing I wanted to talk about is also, uh, since this is the first episode, I wanted to talk about the rationale of the course design as it relates to the reading. So I was revisiting a lot of these texts um, and also updating them because just to make sure that, that the ones that I'm having you read are, are up to date. And as a course on instructional design, I wanted to make sure that the course itself was not didn't it itself have terrible course design. So it, it was it, it was a way for me to not just kind of have you read this stuff, but also make sure that my course was reflects what I'm asking you to do. So as you as we talk about the especially the Donovan and Bransford reading, you'll see how it kind of relates to how this course was designed. And also with the upcoming readings. As you go through the courses, the assignments and even just the design of the course on Moodle and everything, think about the extent to which they reflect kind of the, the principles that we're, we're reading and, and discussing. So that's, I wanted to just give this rationale and, and kind of remind you, every everyone just to reflect on that. Okay, so um, why don't we start with the, the chapter on the human side of facts, which came from a book called The Half-Life of Facts. 
Okay. Just as a background, this came so this came from a book called The Half Life of Facts, and it was really interesting because it was talking about how facts become obsolete over over time because of new discoveries, and that the the amount of information that we know has increased, and we constantly need to update our, our understanding, but often that doesn't happen, and. One of the things, and I don't know if you had a chance to listen to the podcast, but one of the things that he he said when he was being interviewed was how when, when people talk about how schools teach facts and how students may over-rely on things like Wikipedia, the author argues that that's actually a good thing because Wikipedia at least is up-to-date that's true. in a way that encyclopedias or textbooks aren't able to do it as uh, as quickly. And, that's a good and, point. Of course, Wikipedia has its problems. Yeah, um, it's not perfect in that sense, but it does kind of remind us that that we have to remember that facts are not immutable, even though we kind of think of them as as such. But but that it's important to keep us updated, and that, and of course that segues into the other reading on the preconceptions and prior knowledge and all that stuff. Yeah. So, what did you think of the chapter? Um, I thought that it was really interesting how they discuss the importance of the influences of everything around us, because I feel like so much, I feel like I'm making my own decisions and doing everything totally on my own, especially as I'm getting older. But it was interesting to see how they tied everything to what's going on around you. And that it's so much more than that. On page 181, they talked about, they gave like that story about the nosebleed or those mm-hmm. little facts. And I thought that it was interesting because you get the idea of something, but you might miss some facts Mm -hmm. around it, whereas you think you know the whole thing. And just at the beginning, it was like a simple quote, but they just said humans are imperfect. And I feel like we spend so much of our time in life trying to be perfect and fit everything in to like these little categories that we want to know everything about this. We go to school for our certain majors. You want to like really know everything about either education or speech pathology when you graduate and go into the field. But like you're saying, they're up information and even the research that's going on within the field. And I feel like you do miss parts of it. And there's just no way to totally be that perfect person that is totally up to date on every single topic. I was interested in when I was uh, when I was looking at the some of the responses to the year 2049 question and and I think some people talked about AI and 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 the extent of the uh, technology or intelligent agents kind of taking over jobs and yes. I thought it was interesting that the chapter kind of ended with saying how technology can be the, the fact that it can kind of process more information than and humans can that it could help us become more up to date on things and that's kind of how i think about i mean there are obviously horrible bad ways that technologies can be used but I, I think that's one of the ways that i think of technology in that it to let technology do things that we can't do in in order for us to do a better job um, yeah so in that sense it's not replacing us it's it's making our lives better it's yeah it's like enhancing what we can do yeah, to, that's how I like to see where technology goes, um, and at least that's that's where I hope it goes. Yeah, that's um, a good way to look at it. What did you think about the optical illusions part? I thought it was interesting, because optical illusions to me are like the craziest thing. I always go in, and our professors have given them to us on like the first day of classes as kind of a reminder to just see thing, be open to seeing things in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I always get one, and I'm so confident that it's what I'm seeing. 
And I'm like, okay, mm. I got this. I know exactly what it is. And then they point out something different to you. And then all of a sudden you see it that way. And sometimes you can unsee it. But um, a lot of people enjoy looking at these optical illusions. But for me, like, if they're the ones with all the little tiny boxes and everything, I kind of get nervous that I'm going to get dizzy <laughs> or get a headache. And sure. um, it's just interesting to me that it's a way of tricking the brain. And you can look at something. For me, I've looked at pictures for 10 minutes. And you only see one thing. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden, then somebody points it out. And it's like, how could that have been there? How did I miss that? And it kind of just makes me think sometimes, like, how many times is this happening in life? How many times am I walking down the street? And I'm missing out on this or that. Yeah. So it's just, it's kind of crazy to me that something so obvious could be out there and could be so easily missed. And I just thought that it was brought up in, um, in a nice way. Have you seen the gorilla video that he talks about? I don't think that I have. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fun to look at. I mean, obviously, it's if you know what it is, it's, it's less effective. But it yes. is kind of interesting that people miss it just because they're focusing on something else with their minds. And I think that was part of his point. But also, um, as I think in two weeks, we're talking about the brain. The brain is, I would say designed, which is a strange word to use it. But, but it is kind of designed to be um, efficient in that it has to filter out certain things. Because if your brain at every moment is taking account of every single yes. thing ever it, it, you can't your attention would would you know will have it will go you, ha, you will have no attention yeah so it, have, it filters out these things in that way it creates these optical illusions and and same with cognitive biases which is which also the chapter talks about i was kind of confused with the shifting baseline syndrome and i just want to see if you can like oh, okay. go over it a little bit so I think the, the idea of the shifting baseline syndrome is that we tend to base our sense of normalcy on our own experience. Okay. So I, I one of the points I was going to talk about is kind of how it affects in education is kind of like we often tend to believe that the skills and the things we grew up learning in, in school or even the way that we were taught to the extent that we like them we believe that that's how teaching should be like, and those are the type of knowledge. And so I think oftentimes when people talk about, oh, what a shame that kids today can't do this or that, it's often they're basing it on their on their own experience yes. of teaching. And in that sense, I think teaching, especially compared to other professions, like especially like maybe in your field or like in medicine, Typically, in like let's say medicine, I don't think people get that kind of nostalgia. Like, oh, I wish medicine was back like it was in the '60s or yeah, '70s no. or '80s. No, it's true. Um, but uh, but education, and again, not everyone does that. But education sometimes can fall into that trap, like where people are like, oh, God, kids today they can't do this, that, or other thing. So that's kind of one example of it. Another example that the chapter uses is the technology thing, which is where like the technologies that you grew up with are fine. You don't even see them as technology. And then everything after that becomes like, oh, kids today, they're on Snapchat and, and they can't keep their attention for more than a few seconds because yeah. of Snapchat. People who didn't grow up with Snapchat might kind of feel take that feeling. But if you grew up with it and then... It's you don't know anything new, else. And maybe the next thing come along will make you feel that way. So... So that's kind of the baseline. It's like our, we, we base our experience of what is new and what is good to be based on our own experience. Yeah, and I think that 
that relates like to the a lot of people mentioned in the voice mm-hmm. threads about writing the, pre- in script. the pre-reading yes the pre-reading, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly, yeah 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 about writing in script and i think that it is something you look back and say oh everybody should learn that because it's something that we learned but when you look at it and like the practicality of it i guess it's important for like a signature but a lot of these kids from kindergarten are getting chromebooks now mm-hmm. in the school so there there's been like a discussion on are these kids even going to really need to write like of course right now that seems like so far-fetched but if everything becomes on the computer it becomes like kind of crazy just handwriting in general i'm sure that they'll be learning that for many more years but um the script side of it it's like okay where do you spend your time but i can understand why like we feel like it's so important because it's something that was pushed on us and like something that we worked on so hard in school and now it's just like non-existent in the classroom it's kind of weird how that could happen in such a short span of years i think kelly gave an interesting example on spelling um, yes about the importance of spelling it's it i kind of feel like both both sides about it because certainly spell check is not perfect no and um or autocorrect is not perfect i actually use this uh, i have this thing called text expander which automatically um, it's it's often used for like if you have a if you have a form or if you have a you have to use the same template for clients, um, you can kind of put it inside like a and 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 have a shortcut and it'll generate that form for you. Oh wow! And you just fill out fill out the names. But what I also it use called? it for spell check, text expander. Huh. That's interesting. Um, and also and it has it's on you can have it on the phone or um, on the computer. Um, and this podcast is brought to you by. <laughs> <laughs> they, actually, they actually do sponsor podcasts, but I, oh. this is not this is not oh. sponsored at all. <laughs> Maybe so don't someday. worry, I'm not get, I'm not getting any kickbacks. <laughs> but um, I wanted to mention that because spelling is interesting because spelling, when literacy became widespread, people didn't spell very well because there was no convention, and so when when you look at uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but if if you look at the original text of Jane Austen, for example. Like she spelled ways, she spelled words very differently. Like it was inconsistent. And yes. I, 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 as I understand, her handwriting was also <laughs> um, doesn't help. But then it was actually the invention of like the dictionary, where people kind of said, "Okay, this is how we're going to spell these words." That created the idea of having a correct spelling of words. So, in in, in a strange sense, it was, uh, if you want to call it an invention, that created the existence of this thing that, in a way, might be actually be going away because. At some point, I believe spelling maybe not that important. Or, yeah, or, um, it's true. A lot of the kids um, in the schools also use when they're typing that where you could speak into the computer, which, of course, as well is not perfect. But something like that, it's like they, they really don't need to know how to type. It, that gets more and more advanced. It's mm-hmm. kind of just doing it for you. So you never know where things will go. I like Justin's point about talking about teaching in, in China. I thought that was a really interesting example about how teachers in China tends to tend to teach in a way and it's no longer effective. And I just wanted to mention that because exactly it, it previews next week's thing, um, a discussion of misconceptions. And I thought it was it was an interesting thing to bring up. And I also wanted to clarify about the shifting baseline syndrome. It's it's not so it, it doesn't have to be about your personal bias. It ha- it could be. I think the example they use he uses in the beginning is on fishing. Yeah. He was saying that when people go out and measure, you know, like measure the fish population, where it used to be very abundant, and then when people measured at another time, they use a different baseline, 
which has a lower population and they use it and then if decades later they use a different baseline and so if we use that baseline we won't understand that the fish population is declining um because we shift the the um the baseline to whatever we have and i i would say climate change would probably fall into the category as well like we might not sense climate change but if we we have to look at it over time and, and understand the change over a longer period of time and not use our immediate you know, like, oh, well, this winter was more or less cold or whatever, that that's not the right way to look at it. And we have to look, understand the whole thing. So I just want to clarify that. Thank you. So I wanted to talk about a little bit of uh, about the book, how people learn. This chapter actually came from a, a different book, but you'll hear a lot about this book, how people learn. And it's one of the best, not not even that, I'll say the best book on learning sciences. It's It came out in 2000. And I didn't want to use it as a primary text because it, it sounds, I guess it, it is a long time ago, but the research from them is still relevant. Still the test of time. And, yeah. And so the, the chapter, the introduction that you read came from a follow-up in 2004 called How Students Learn. And then they released something called How People Learn 2, like last year, oh, okay. which is more focused on neuroscience. I, it got a little bit technical, so I didn't, um, I, you, you, there might be one chapter that you're, you'll be reading. And all three books are in the library, as an e-library. So I, I really encourage, if you haven't read it, to read it because I, I found that to be really helpful. So that's where how people learn and then also how they're by the same authors or more similar authors. So what did you think about that chapter, that reading? Yeah, like you said, I feel like this wasn't a technical reading, which was mm-hmm. great because I feel like going through it, and um, it gave a lot of examples. And for me, when it gives an example and breaks it down, kind of and makes it relatable, that's how I'm able to remember things. If I just keep mm-hmm. reading about like research, I'm like, okay, this is like cool, but I don't know if I'll ever remember it. But since it gave the different examples, and I feel like um, the different images as well, were mm-hmm. very helpful in breaking it down. Um, I like how at the end they related it to the classroom and showed ways in which it was applicable or not and how further yeah. research was needed in certain aspects of it because I feel like that's really important to say that at the end, not just mm-hmm. like, okay, this is a book about what we think here. They're saying that like they don't have the exact facts on certain things and it needs to be further developed. So I mm-hmm. thought that that was... Um, a great point, and I think that there's a lot to be gained from it. In this course, you hear a lot about different principles and, and design rules or something like that. But I, the, the three here are are going to be the most important, and a, lo- a lot of the other reading come back to these. So um, it's important to kind of just make sure that kind of starting that you, that you understand what these three principles are. So just as by a means of starting the discussion, what was your favorite subject in school? Um, My favorite subject in school was sign language, which I started Mm. taking in high school. And I was able to go to, I don't know if you've heard of Cleary School for the Deaf in Wisconsin Mm. on Long Island. So I was able to intern there as well. So I was able to take what I was learning in the classroom and actually apply it into Mm. um, a classroom setting. So for me, that made me like really motivated. And I was beginning to see what I wanted to do as Mm -hmm. At the time, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. And then when I got there, I saw speech pathology and fell in love with it. So it was just something exciting for me to do every day. And I felt like learning sign language was helping me toward my career. So it was just something that really interested me. And did you feel that the way they were teaching it, reading the chapter, did you feel like 
they use any part of it of the uh, free learning principles? Um, yes, definitely. Just kind of looking at where you are. And they talked about self-monitoring, which I feel like I did a lot of at that time to make sure mm-hmm. that um, I was headed in the right direction. And is this the right decision? Am I in the right classroom right now? Do I want to switch to a different one to see more of what I like? And mm-hmm. yeah, I definitely feel like it related to that. So the first principle being engaging prior understandings, which is kind of what I tried to do with the pre-class survey and then hopefully with the pre-reading, which is something that I'm doing for the first time for this class, would be for me to get a sense of the class's prior understandings of the topic. So that would be kind of my, my way of doing it. And, and a lot of structural design guides will, will say that it's always good to kind of get started with getting a sense of what students know. That way you know where to start from. Is that something that, that you work with in terms of what you do with getting per understandings or is that yes um because i know you're you're not a classroom teacher yeah so it's a little bit different sure um when we have a new client starting like we just did an evaluation last week for a boy he was about seven years old and Mm -hmm. he's having trouble with certain sounds so mostly articulation errors Mm -hmm. now he's going to be coming in this week for his first um session And at the beginning, we kind of just sit down and give him an idea of what's going on. So this isn't a place where we want you to stay forever. This Mm -hmm. is just like an extra support that we want you to come for a few weeks, months. If it needs to be years, then that's fine. But eventually, we want you to be able to do this on your own without having to come here so frequently. So we're going to teach you some tools. And then we go over, before you start just diving into therapy, you give them a little bit of an idea of the placement of where you want theirs, mm-hmm. um, like speech mechanisms to be. So their tongue, it needs to be like behind the alveolar ridge. If you explain that, he might not know where that is. So just kind of discussing it because it all stems from that anatomy and placement. Mm-hmm. So just describing that in um, a simpler way for a young child is important because if you just start going and tell him to put his tongue behind his alveolar ridge she's not going to know where that is so just telling them what we are we go into their mouths with like a rubber glove and they think that we're a doctor and they get nervous because that's the only time that they've seen somebody do that so just describing to them that it's not that type of place we're not going to do anything that um, is going to hurt you we don't have any shots or anything like that here so um just describing it i think it is important and the way that you did that as an introduction to the class i feel like was very settling Mm. and gave it I don't know, you kind of get an idea and a vibe right from the beginning that can Mm -hmm. either set you off like, oh gosh, this is going to be a long semester or like, okay, wait, (laughs) he's going to like work with us and be a little bit more down to earth. And I think that's the vibe that you want to give to the students as well coming into the speech pathology practice. Not that like, oh my gosh, this is another class that I'm going to have to do after school every day, but this is just a place where I can go. It's going to be very relaxed and hopefully I'll just make myself better. I mean, all these principles are related. So the reason you want to get the prior understanding is because both kind of the possibility of kind of preconceptions and misconceptions yes. that people have a way of making sense of the world that may or may not be correct or may be partially correct. And so once you know that prior understanding, you can get into the second principle, which is to understand or help them get to a conceptual framework to help them organize the knowledge. So the idea is, and this will come up throughout the semester, is the balance between these big ideas, these core concepts, which are abstract and out there, and the importance of factual 
knowledge and helping them be able to integrate it into the right kind of conceptual framework that may or may not align with what they have. And so if they, to the extent that they have, or this, to the extent that students come with a slightly skewed, different, or incorrect conceptual framework, that you help them get to the correct one. So that's kind of the, the, the importance of principle two. And you have an example um, relating to this. Do you want to tell us about it? Yeah, sure. So as I was reading through this chapter, I saw that fish example, which was right at the mm -hmm. beginning, that fish story. And it, I thought it was a great way to open up the chapter and kind of catch your attention because it's going along and it kind of reminded me of The Little Mermaid where mm. um, Ariel just wants to find out what it's like to be on land and just thinks that um, it will be better. And at first, that's where I thought the story was going. But then really, it took us somewhere else. And it mm. just reminded me of um, the deaf community. And you, they call it, I don't know if you're familiar with the deaf community. They have um, deaf with a big D or a little d. If you're mm -hmm. big D deaf, it means that you have deaf culture. And you have a lot of deaf pride. And the thought of getting a hearing aid to them is just kind of offensive. Like, why would I need that? I'm sure. fine the way that I am. Like, don't try to change me. I'm happy with who I am. I have this culture and built society. And then there's little D who are people who are deaf, but when they're born, they got a clear implant. They really mm -hmm. never were deaf or they just don't identify as being deaf. They just yeah. kind of get by. So it reminded me of that where the people who are big D deaf and have that deaf culture and deaf pride, deaf pride they don't know really what they're missing without hearing. Mm -hmm. so it's impossible for them to conceptualize or truly understand what we mean by like oh get a hearing aid you can listen to the bird chirp or this or that like they have no idea what that means whereas this fish was being described um a cow and what's going on on land like humans and all that he was thinking of was a fish walking because that's yeah. his theory of mind and that's all that he knows so I just thought that it was so interesting to see that. And I think we forget that a lot of the times too. And I see working with um, kids who have autism, their theory of mind and where they come from is very different than ours. And you could say something and they take it very literally. I just mm -hmm. feel like it relates so much. I thought that it was such a great example mm -hmm. and something that I'll definitely remember. Do you know the, have you seen the documentary Sound and Fury? Yes, I have. Yeah, okay, because that's what you uh, made me remind me of. Yes. Um, and that's, uh, that's, I mean, obviously, it's a perfect example of what you're talking about. So I think that's something, as you said, to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it totally ties. It's like you think that something's so important, but to that person, it might not be. And I think that's why some some people like to use the idea of kind of immersive technologies like VR, like virtual reality, yes, um, or, or or just simulations to get you into the perspective and experience of a particular group that you might not necessarily have uh, know know about, and to to get that empathy. I think uh, I, I know that there are simulations that are supposed to show what's like to be schizophrenic. Wow. Um, they might. I think they might even be one on dementia. I don't know their names off the top of my head. I, I think you'd be able to find it. But I think in in that sense, it helps people un, uh, understand. Yeah, and, like walk in someone else's shoes. Yeah, yeah, and and in one of the, uh, I think one of the in one of the weeks, I think the topic is understanding or something like that, or at least we'll be reading about understanding that there are six parts or six facets of understanding and empathy being one of them. So yeah, so I like that you brought it up. And that's really why it's really important 
to make sure that whatever we're teaching that we think of factual understanding and but also its relation to some kind of conceptual framework which is the harder part um you can teach you know fractions or american revolution or I'm trying to think of an example from science no um, conservation of energy that's a thing right yes <laughs> um you can teach them because like we have to teach it it's it's this month and that's what we teach but you have to make sure that it it's kind of is connected to this conceptual framework and i noticed that in a lot of the um the pre-class survey responses a lot of you mentioned that you 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 want it to be kind of relevant and you don't want to learn stuff that's not related so i think that's so that would be the challenge for me and and also just just to make sure that things you teach or or you use are are connected to this conceptual framework so that you understand it in a way that is relevant to you. So and a lot of the conceptual big idea stuff are 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 the standards are the you know the national and the state standards. They tend to be on the big area, big idea area, and and so the challenge for teachers is to is to integrate those in a in a meaningful way. Yes, it's true. So the third principles is self-monitoring which is the metacognitive part which basically is about being able to take a step back and evaluate like what do i understand about this thing what what are the patterns what are what are the connections i'm making and what are the connections i'm not making so with a meta reflection assignment it's kind of like that typically the meta the self-monitoring is obviously more about yourself the meta reflection um I'm asking you to do it as a reflection of the week's discussions and I'm leaving it somewhat open so that if you want to kind of focus on yourself as as you kind of look through the discussions or if you want to do a kind of more holistic thing about you know like looking over other students what they have said and how they have evolved or and then how that kind of connects back to you um that's the general idea of the meta reflection it's just again just to take a step back and look at the week and what people have said Okay, so it's not really a summary of the readings. No, no, no. It, or anything it should, on that. Yeah. It's just kind of a yeah. collective, like, this is what we did. Like, kind of like what went on throughout the week. So what I don't want is, is for people to be like, well, this person said this, that person said that, and this person said this. And, yes. you know, I don't want I don't want that because that's obviously yeah, it's not really helpful. No. Um, but to be able to just kind of look back and say, you know, in this slide, the we had these kind of these trends were going on and it seems like these were some points people were making and and then um for me this means you know this that another thing and then if you have questions you might think you know like i'd like to know how this connects to this or be able to kind of step back and, and kind of give that broad analysis does that make sense yes and should we mention the ratings for the week or just kind of leave that out and just kind of talk about the discussions through the voice sides if it helps you can bring up the reading but it doesn't need you can to be included no i mean because the, the slides will be a most of them That's will true. be about the readings yes, good point. okay so and i think for teachers I, I imagine teachers would often at the end of a, at the end of a lesson or a class have a final word which yes. is kind of what i would do with my wrap-up so this is just a way for 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 you to do that. Okay, that sounds great. I'm happy okay. that I asked. I was <laughs> totally Yeah, awesome. no, that's good. Okay, perfect. Good, uh, Thank you. The final thing I want to do is uh, we have some audience questions yes. that I wanted to just quickly address. We might not talk about all of them, but one question from Lena was 
This is about the Donovan and Bransford reading on page 14. She wanted to know, given that students have different cultural backgrounds and values, or how do teachers provide students with what they need to connect with the information? So what do you think of that? Um, I thought that it's just important to make connections relevant to their culture. But again, that's being biased on myself because for me, those connections, like I mentioned before, are just so important. And that's a way that I kind of remember things. So if somebody tied something to a Sunday dinner... I would mm. like get that and I would kind of remember it. So just being aware of their cultural backgrounds and values, I think are, are important just so that you're able to make those connections kind of on the spot. It probably will never be as easy to tie things to as your own culture, but there might be mm-hmm. something that just stands out that you're able to make a connection to here and there. And I think mm-hmm. that that's just important to make them feel like they're included. And yeah, I feel like that could be an important part of it, but I definitely do think that it's difficult because it's so easy, like you were kind of talking before, to just have your own knowledge and go based on that and your experiences rather than mm-hmm. somebody else's. But as a teacher or somebody who's, um, I guess, just in uh, helping professions at all, it's important to realize that like you're not doing this for yourself and to make it about connections that are easy for you to get. It's about connections that the students or other people that you're trying to help are going to like benefit from. So I thought it was a really good point. In question. Yeah, I mean, for me, that's also what the pre-class service is for. I ask, you know, kind of getting your, a sense of your background and also the uh, the introduction stuff, The even the icebreakers. That's that's my way f- to for me to get to know you, even though they seem like kind of like, a, like going around the class and asking people's names kind of thing, which kind yeah, of sounds no. tedious for, uh, for some. But I actually, I, that is for me, that is a source of information for me to get a sense of who you are, where you're coming from. So this is something that will come up over the course of the semester. But one thing I do less formally, but more formally now is that I would actually kind of make notes on students and kind of get a sense of who they are. And just to have that kind of a a profile of who you are and, and to know what are the things that I might need to do or provide or, or make a connection. So yeah, it's a great question. It's an important question. And, and it, a lot of it, it starts with you trying to get in, getting to know who, who your students are, which also is the kind of the principal one, the prior understanding part of it. Yeah. And the other question is, to, in order to, to encourage students to express their ideas and, and ask questions, what role the teachers play and, and what kind of lesson plans do uh, would work best? Um, and she cited, uh, Elena again cited Donovan and Bransford, page 20. So I was wondering, what is your, what are your views on this? Oh, I think that it's so important because if you don't give that situation where they're able to express themselves and their ideas, mm-hmm. I don't think that they might, like they may not do it on their own, mm-hmm. especially with the way that the curriculum can be sometimes where, again, I'm not in the classroom, but from what I've seen pushing in that it's a lot of structure Mm-hmm. And there's not so much time to just sit down and like, oh, let's just do free writing today. When I was in school, I feel like we had a lot of time for that. I know that they mm-hmm. still do, but it might not be, it doesn't really seem to be exactly the same as it was then. So mm-hmm. I think that just giving them that time to express themselves and do things like that is so important for people who are creative. I'm totally not. But for people who are creative, <laughs> just having that time, I feel like you can learn so much. Like I look at the Moodle page that you're doing and everything like that. Like, I've never seen something like that. But I'm sure that it takes a lot of time to just sit down and have the time to come up with, like, take time out of your day to sit there and do that. And I feel like giving kids time to come up with something that's, like, different or outside of the box 
is the mm. only way that they'll really have the chance to come up with something that's not so ordinary or like following the format that's been done before. So I think that it's so important. The immediate answer for me is is that the teacher should not, should be a facilitator or a coach and not the traditional kind of didactic like I'm I have all this knowledge and I'm going to impart it to you kind of thing. Which is why I tend to avoid doing the lectures and you know lectures would make my life easy because I yeah. can record like a thirty or sixty minute lecture and I can reuse it every semester um, without yes. doing anything with it. And then you and and I'll leave it up to the students to to learn or not learn. That's not what teachers should do. Teachers should kind of just coach and facilitate. And that's when I asked you that when I asked you to do the forums and the and the kind of the voice thread. I I'm monitoring it like what are you know where are you going and and then stepping in when I have to. But for the most part, letting the students kind of do their own thing, which usually you know the students are 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 able to do that with very little intervention from me. I I intervene because I don't want students to think that I'm not listening. Yes. I do listen. To every single of your voice the comments usually like twice so okay. Um, so okay that's a good question and i think that wraps up our podcast okay that sounds great i want to thank you again for being the first to do this and it was a great discussion yeah thank you for having me this was um, fun yeah yeah um and uh all right that's it that sounds great thank, thank you, you. Thank thanks you. for everything